Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrated life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. And before we get into today's show, I wanted to give you a quick preview of an upcoming special episode. I'm very excited to announce that at the end of this month, I'll be attending the 33rd annual meeting of the American Society for Gravitational and Space Research. Their mission involves looking at the effects of gravity and also the lack of gravity on physical and biological systems. Their annual meeting brings together the leading researchers in the field, and I'm looking forward to getting the chance to talk to them. So we'll be doing interviews on things like the International Space Station, microbiomes in space, and plant growth on Mars, as well as things like human survival of stratospheric jumps. So it should be an absolutely action-packed show, and AIBS is proud to partner with ASGSR in putting together the episode for you. I'll include a link with more information in the show notes, and I hope you'll look forward to it as much as I am. And moving on to today's show, I'm joined by two researchers. They're Dr. Mary Blair, who's with the Center for Biodiversity and Conservation at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, and Dr. Ming Lee, who's a lecturer at Vietnam National University and also a research associate with the American Museum of Natural History. They joined me to talk about wildlife trade, and in particular, a framework that they've developed to allow interdisciplinary teams to bring the wisdom of multiple fields to bear in studying the trade of wild organisms. So without further ado, I'll let them explain, and let's get straight to the interview. Uh, Dr. Blair and Dr. Lee, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Okay, before we dig further into your article, I was hoping you could give us a brief overview of wildlife trade. You know, what do we mean when we say that term, uh, and to what does it refer? Um, sure, I can start, and Ming can chime in as, as he sees fit. Um, wildlife trade, it refers to the trade of um, animal or plant parts and products or whole animals. It is one of the most profitable um, illicit trades, internationally speaking. It's the third most profitable behind weapons and drugs trades um, in the world. Yeah, and I think it's uh, you know, one of the most profitable uh, trade, as uh, Mary said, and it's worth about from 10 to 20 billion U.S. dollars. Wow, that's an enormous amount of money. Um, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the current regulatory framework for the management of the wildlife trade. Um, you know, kind of at what level international or national is that generally managed? And in what ways has it been successful or unsuccessful? Uh, yeah, so yeah, I think it's, um, you know, it's very tricky. And um, the things like a government usually, for example, like in Vietnam, uh, we, you know, kind of historically, we are the export country. Uh, we mostly export uh, products from within the countries to uh, neighboring, uh, you know, countries like China and then some further away, Taiwan. And recently, we become like a, a um, you know, hubs for many other uh, products from other countries. Uh, and also, you know, you know, very um, like uh, over the last ten years, we become like a consuming country as well. Uh, so I think it's complicated for you know the law enforcement and for other agencies to see the evolutions in a short period of time, you know, uh, through so many different um, steps. And, and so I think it's, it's uh, uh, very challenging for, for uh, the government agencies. And also because of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, uh, shortage in, um, you know, um, resources, both, uh, both in terms of capacity and also in terms of financial uh, capacity as well. Yeah, and if, if I could add to that, I mean, I think Ming captured this well, but there's 
um, it's an extremely complicated trait. Um, we're talking about any wild animal or plant that is being exploited for human use. Um, there's such a huge diversity of things that that could encompass. Um, and so, and people might be using these things at, for very different reasons in different places and might be um, especially at different scales as well. So, and that's in, indeed what one of the major challenges that we're trying to address um, in this paper is how, how do you approach doing research on such a complex system where extremely different drivers of the trade might be going on at the same time in different places and at different scales, spatial scales, for example, at the local scale versus the international scale. Um, and how does that match up with the very different um, policies and governance uh, activities that are going on at those different scales. Okay. So we've got this sort of multi-scalar problem uh, that has many, many moving parts. And you developed a framework to sort of help people understand that. And I'm wondering if you could just give us a little bit of a clue into how that framework works and how you developed it. So we, what we've done is adapted Eleanor Alstrom's social ecological systems framework um, specifically to study wildlife trade. So we've highlighted and adapted some of the variables that she mentioned um, to be especially useful for wildlife trade. And then we've taken it a step further to think about how the framework can be used to iteratively explore variables from different disciplines to come to uh, research questions and hypotheses and, and question the assumptions that might be made in, in different disciplines. Um, and maybe I'll talk about that for a minute before I get into the specifics of the framework. So this is really important because as, you know, as biologists, as natural scientists, we, we make some assumptions um, at the outset of our work about, for example, our own objectivity as um, observers of the natural world we often make assumptions about transferability. So for example, that um, what we observe in one place, whatever relationship that might be, we can transfer to another place uh, under certain assumptions. Um, we often make assumptions about scalability, that um, what we observe in one place, we can then scale up uh, to a larger spatial extent or area or across time scales, for example. Um, and especially when we put those assumptions into dialogue with um, data or questions that might come about through sociocultural anthropology, for example, um, we are forced to question those assumptions. Um, and so that can be extremely helpful, especially in this case. Um, so to go into our framework, Eleanor Ostrom's Social Eco Ecological Systems Framework has four main components, resource units, resource system, the governance system, and actors. So we've um, characterized wildlife trade in a similar way. So in a wildlife trade system, you can think of resource units as the traded species in question or their populations, and they could be measured using biological data such as genetic data, or our um, ecological survey data, they could be measured at various scales from local to global. 
and that's something that we've added here is a more kind of explicit um, measurement of different spatial scales because of how how important we think that dimension is to to wildlife trade. Um, next, we can look at the resource system. This is similar to what Eleanor Ostrom talked about. So we can think about if this is a forest dwelling species like the slow loris, we can think about forests, we can think about um, agroforests, and we can think about accessibility uh, to forests, for example, with roads um, and dam construction, etc. And those could be characterized again with biological or remote sensing data, for example. Um, we also look at the governance system component, and in terms of wildlife trade, we're interested here in global treaties like the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species. We're interested also in protected area management uh, strategies and how the protected area managers uh, interact with provincial governments as well as local police. So who, who does the enforcement of laws at what scale, for example. And finally, we turn to actors. Why are people engaging in trade? Uh, who is engaging in trade? At, at what point in the trade chain are they engaging? Um, why are people buying versus hunting or selling? Um, and this is a really uh, one of the most important and challenging parts of of our system. Um, and then we we can explore um, these things in, in our paper. Here we're talking about exploring the variables and the research questions that um, you can answer using these different components. Um, but you could, once you have the data for an entire system, you could go through and if you wanted to, mathematically model how they interact and in the, in the outcomes that come to be, for example, through a systems dynamics model. Um, but we're arguing here that just articulating the framework itself, bringing different disciplines together, allows you to question assumptions and better characterize from the beginning of your study um, the system at hand. Did you want to add anything, Ning? I just want to add that, uh, you know, in the original uh, framework, um, you know, from um, uh, Eleanor, Eleanor Ostrom, um, he, she has been, you know, had been um, criticized because uh, it's, all, you know, that's the original one come from social science. So the ecological uh, component is pretty much ignored in, in the system or in the framework. So I think we both come from, you know, uh, evolutionary biology. So um, we, I think we are able to add, you know, additional information or uh, methodology to the ecological component of, of the framework. And I think it, it's worked pretty well in, in our case. That sounds great. And so it sounds like the value of, um, you know, taking this sort of iterative approach is that you get to encompass and bring in all of the different disciplines um, so that you're not overly reliant or subject to uh, the presuppositions or assumptions of any one. Exactly. And as you can imagine, that's a challenge. Um, and I, you know, I wouldn't advocate that one person, like a PhD student, should probably not embark on a on a study and try to effectively get a PhD in all of these different disciplines, right? This is really a framework to implement at, in a team of interdisciplinary right. researchers uh, from the beginning. And it takes a special group of people to be able to right. really interact in this way and go back and forth with open-mindedness and, and respect 
for um, the different disciplines, as you might be able to imagine. Okay, and why don't we then take a moment and look at you know the ways in which a team like that might work together? Um, so, if if there's an exemplar species we can use, I know you wrote about the slow loris. Um, that would be great. But, you know, kind of how does all that come together? You know, what sort of data are being compiled and used to um, gain that sort of interdisciplinary view of a species trade? Yeah, if if I can just summarize for the slow loris, I think um, where this really became apparent to us in, in doing the work, we actually started the project with the slow loris with the intention of clarifying their uh phylogenetic relationships, phylo- molecular phylogeny, and, and how many species there are. Um, so we started this project from that perspective. Um, and I can add a little bit more detail and then come back to summarize. So slow lorises are nocturnal primates. Um, there are between 8 and 11 species recognized right now, depending on who you talk to. And um, they're distributed from... Um, Bangladesh through mainland Southeast Asia and into insular Southeast Asia, so in uh, Malaysia and Indonesia. And um, these animals, there aren't many people who study them. So compared to other primates, you know, they're pretty small. Um, They're nocturnal, so it's harder for people to go out and study them. When we go looking for them, Ming and I were literally out all night. Uh, which Ming is used to because he's a herpetologist, but it was a big shift for me. I used to study diurnal monkeys, uh, squirrel monkeys in Costa Rica for my PhD. And so going out all night uh, was a challenge at first, but I grew to really like it. And especially I love finding snakes and, and spiders and stuff. That's pretty awesome. But anyway, so not many people study them. And it seemed like Anytime anyone started going into the genetics or morphology, they were finding new species. So there's definitely undescribed um, diversity in this clade. So we went into a study of slow lorises in Vietnam to clarify if there is additional uh, genetic or evolutionary um, genetic lineages in, in this group, as would be consistent with a lot of other vertebrates in Vietnam that have different species in the northern, central, and southern parts of Vietnam, which um, relates to well-known zoogeographic barriers and and climatic gradients. Um, So we went into that with that in mind. Um, And as Ming mentioned, we we ended up by using museum specimens and um, a wide range of genetic samples from our field work across the country with this amazing reference database um, that could pinpoint the origin of slow lorises that were confiscated in trade. Um, So from that database, we easily found several animals that were confiscated in the north that originated from southern Vietnam. Um, We got funding from the National Science Foundation and then Ming got um, complementary funding from USAID, the peer science program, to expand our work to include a more interdisciplinary aspect. So starting to do um, semi-structured questionnaires um, with people to understand their motivations to engage in trade, as well as ethnographic in-depth interviews with key informants, so people that directly work in trade. 
Um, and this took place over several years, as you can imagine. It takes a long time to gain trust, um, especially for the informant interviews. So we, we had what we thought was a clear picture from the genetic information that there was a northward trade from south to north Vietnam, um, which then probably went into China and other places from there. Um, and this is consistent with what people have found um, for trade of other species. But once we started analyzing the interview data, um, a lot of people were talking about trade from central Vietnam to the south and then out um, to other places in the south um, as well, other countries like Taiwan, for example. Um, and so it became clear to us that either our sample size was too low to detect this other direction of trade from the genetic data, or because we're only looking at mitochondrial loci, um, the genetic loci that we're looking at do not have a high enough resolution to detect that spatial pattern. And that's probably more likely the case. Um, there are two major mitochondrial clades for the pygmy slow loris anyway in Vietnam, which, which is what we've been mostly talking about. And the southern clade includes both central and southern populations. So even if that movement was going on, because of the loci that we're using, we can't detect it. Um, so maybe if we had thousands of SNPs or uh, nuclear intrads or microsatellites, we would be able to better tell them apart. And in, indeed, we hope to move in that direction with this research in the future. Um, but right now, if we combine data from these disciplines together, we can get a fuller and more nuanced picture of what's going on. And if, if we had, for example, given advice to uh, practitioners on the ground to really focus on the trade northward, um, we would have missed, we would have effectively given them bad advice uh, because they would have missed this entirely different direction of trade that was going on. So this is a case in which, you know, the evidence from one field, if not coupled with the evidence from another, would have been insufficient and could have led to bad advice to practitioners or regulators? Right. I'm, I'm curious about sort of the end game of this research. You know, uh, you talked about informing practitioners, but is the ultimate end of, you know, uh, a research team that's kind of working on wildlife trade to pass that information along to those who are enforcing regulations, or is it to, uh, you know, just gain a, a wealth of knowledge about the way that specific species are traded? Sort of what's the, you know, final product of that sort of research? Great question. Um, I think, you know, Ming does a lot of work with the Vietnam government as well, so I think he can talk a lot more about the database maybe. Um, just a suggestion, but I'll, I'll yeah. start briefly. So um, our, our museum, the American Museum of Natural History, has been working in Vietnam since 1995. To, and since that time, even though we've been focusing on um, scientific research, mostly multi-taxon biotic inventories, we've always done that research with the aim of supporting conservation activities and actions on the ground. So um, in the 90s and early 2000s, we were providing biotic inventory information to help establish protected areas. Um, and now I'm happy to say that our research so far on slow lorises has helped support a new national action plan for primate conservation in Vietnam, 
which was signed by the Prime Minister in May. So we're really excited about that. Um, and it is true that with, with this paper, we're particularly interested in making the case for other folks who are doing research or want to do research on wildlife trade to be very thoughtful from the beginning about the questions they're asking uh, about whether interdisciplinary work uh, needs to be applied and, and how to build the teams and the tools to, to make that possible. So we are kind of focusing on research here, but we're focusing on research that has a direct application. Um, and indeed, our research can help to target hotspots for enforcement and it can help um, really think about where the gaps are right now. So for example, most enforcement right now happens at local scales, at protected area um, locations, for example. It happens at the source. Um, mm -hmm. But a lot of our research suggests that really the leverage points might be in more urban areas um, where, and even at international scales where, for example, the slow loris is being sold uh, in Japan, Russia, and the UK for tens of thousands of dollars as an exotic pet. And that level of demand uh, and that pressure might be more of an important focus point um, than some of the lower hanging fruit at, at other scales. Um, mm -hmm. Ming, do you want to talk about the database, which is very exciting? Yeah. So yeah, so uh, I think uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, as as Mary mentioned, it's, it's, uh, this paper is more like a uh, uh, recommendation for for future research uh, rather than you know really um, you know prescribe a, a sort of measure for for uh, law enforcement officers. But we we do have some like a, um, a product that that can be used uh, for law enforcement. Which is uh, you know our database, real proposed database uh, for DNA barcoding, and uh, that database you know uh, that we propose is um, you know as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, if you have enough uh, samples uh, from different localities, from different populations, geographic uh, population of certain you know like a endangered species or you know uh, um, heavily traded uh, species you can really target like a, um, for example, like a um, uh, population that under, you know, really um, heavy, you know, uh, um, harvesting activities, hotspot of activities of threat, and then you can target those uh, population and, and really provide a higher level of, of uh, protections for those populations, which is, I think, I think it's a pretty, um, you know, uh, good for, for law enforcement officers to prioritize the resources. And I think that kind of database can be very useful, not just for Vietnam, but also for many other uh, Southeast Asian and then even further, uh, you know, uh, away uh, countries that are facing a lot of uh, pressure from uh, wildlife threats. Okay, great. I think that's incredibly helpful in describing not only the work that you've already done, uh, but some of the work that we'll be seeing in the future. I had just one last question for you, um, and it's, have you run into any particular challenges, you know, kind of working in this interdisciplinary fashion? You know, are, are there any sort of uh, points of friction or um, things that are, you know, a little more ch difficult to do uh, than they would be when you're working within, a, you know, more specific subfield? <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> and are you willing to talk about them? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we've been lucky because our team of individuals are, you know, we've known each other for a long time. And so we're right. 
we're friends and we, we get along quite well. Um, but, you know, it, it's amazing how you'll all be saying the same word, for example, like model. Um, and you think you know exactly what you mean by that word. But then, you know, an economist will mean something completely different about it. And an anthropologist will mean something completely different by that word. And you realize you have like an hour long conversation about, but you're not on the same page at all because you didn't have the same definition of what that initial word was at the beginning of the conversation. So, you know, that happened a few times, but um, it takes more time. That is for sure. Uh, it takes more time, it takes more engagement, and it takes, you know, deep, open-minded conversations um, and self-reflection to, to make this kind of work possible. But I, you know, it seems to be more and more common as it becomes more apparent now in the Anthropocene, right, that we as humans cannot be so easily separated um, from quote-unquote nature and the natural resource problems around us. And we, we need to start doing more of research that um, solidly includes us as a component and our behavior as a component in the work. And to not do so is um, doing us a disservice, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, I, I think I, I um, you know, I, I, you know, Absolutely agree with um, uh, Mary, and I think we're lucky that we have like a people that we know for a long time and open-minded. But I, I imagine that there's a lot of people that that you know not like us, and and they maybe you know more selfish in in their way of, of uh, looking at different problems, more like you know territorial and, and things like that. Could be uh, not very efficient uh, working in a team. And I also think that, you know, this kind of work would be like, a, you know, or similar, you know, which is not talking about our work, but, you know, similar work should be like, a you know, uh, more common in the future because to tackle, uh, you know, global change and, you know, complex problem like a climate change or wildlife trade, the things that, you know, involve so much, uh, you know, uh, things uh, around us and, and need really like an interdisciplinary approach. I think we, people should work more with each other and then sharing more with each other to, to, in order to be successful. Yeah, I, I just want to credit my undergraduate liberal arts education, I think with, um, you know, even though I majored in biology, I remember one of our labs in developmental biology class with Scott Gilbert, who literally wrote the textbook. Um, he, instead of lab one day, he had us read a series of papers and talk about the power of metaphor in science mm -hmm. and how, um, for example, with the fertilization of, of egg and sperm and the study of that, there was a common metaphor used um, for sperm that was that there was a sperm arms race and the sperms were all competing to see who would fertilize the egg and the overuse of those metaphors guided the research questions that were asked by the scientists. Mm -hmm. And um, it wasn't until a woman, PhD in the 70s or 80s, even thought to ask the question about the damsel in distress in this metaphor, the egg. And what is the egg doing? Um, is the egg just sitting there waiting to be fertilized? No, the egg is actively putting out compounds to filter and choose the sperm that will be um, chosen for fertilization. So 
that's an example that, that my professor really wanted to impart to us as students about the quote-unquote objectivity of the questions that we ask and how we as scientists are informed by broader society. Um, and so I think I've always wanted to think in an interdisciplinary way like this um, since, you know, that experience and even before. Um, and so it came very naturally to me. Um, but it's, it's true, as Ming said, you know, that's, that's not the case for some, some uh, natural mm -hmm. scientists, especially, and some social scientists, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it, it takes work to find the right, the right people in a team. And there's more and more being written about this. Um, you know, we're not the only ones talking about these challenges and how important they are mm -hmm. to our fields as a broader whole. Mm -hmm. So that sounds like a very strong case for incorporating uh, as many frames of reference as you possibly can. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Blair and Dr. Lee, for joining me today. Thank you. And that nearly concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. I wanted to throw in a very quick plug for the AIBS Enabling Interdisciplinary and Team Science Program. If you like this episode, you'll love that program and gain a lot from it. Uh, go to AIBS.org and scroll down to the events section to learn more. And now that does conclude this episode of Bioscience Talks. And just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.